Welcome to another episode of the Unexpected Podcast. My name is Alisher, and I am uh, outside of the Philadelphia region. I am joined by my co-hosts, Matt and Evan, who are both in the Boston area, uh, Rainier, who is in uh, Hilversum in the Netherlands, and our guest today, Haroon. Uh, Haroon, where are you coming from? Where uh, from, the, from the Rotterdam area, so it's uh, a little bit more to the south of Amsterdam. Okay, and I think we have a really great episode planned for today. We're going to be talking about the Dutch GT, which took place about two months ago now, I think. Um, and we, uh, unfortunately, I was unable to attend, but Matt, Evan, and Rainier were all there. Uh, and we're going to be able to kind of cover that event. And uh, <clears throat> it seemed like from the receiving end of just hearing little bits and pieces of news that it was a really great event. So I'm excited to talk about it and ask some questions. So Haroon... Uh, I wanted to start off by asking you, um, so how does, I guess, SBG work in the Netherlands? Do you guys have a league? Uh, and are you specifically part of a group that hosts this event annually? Um, yeah, so uh, first off, I think concerning the league uh, things, uh, we're currently now starting a new league once again in 2024. Uh, for the last couple of years, we didn't have one because, well, due to the COVID, there were no possibilities or anything to run the league, though. Um, but uh, back in 2017, I started up the uh, Dutch league for the first time. Uh, people could uh, qualify for, uh, at that time, the European team championships and also the ranking and how we would put down our teams for uh, the article event. Uh, but this year, yeah, it's going to be amazing, though, because I think over the last few years, uh, the Dutch community has been growing so fast uh, in such a positive way, uh, which is, for me, actually amazing to see. Um, because, yeah, if, I, if we're going a little bit back into history, uh, I'm doing now the, the the normal hobby for over 20-plus years. And I think Middle Earth was always my first and still the game I love the most uh, and um, around 20, 2004, 2005, something like that, I started to move into the scene in the Netherlands and I think there we had like maybe maximum 20 or 30 people coming around from the entire country to two or three places because you had two or three great tournaments over the year where you saw everyone and then during the year itself, you only had like one or two smaller events near the area. And I think around 2014, 2015, it, it picked up a little bit more. Um, I think it's all also been a bit of the influence when GW started to bring back Middle Earth in a new jacket with also the Hobbit movies and everything like that. And uh, yeah, from there on, it started to grow because uh, I had a location as well where I could start to organize tournaments uh, together with uh, the Rotterdam White Scars. So that's also the group uh, slash hosts that are currently now organizing the Dutch GT, but also other tournaments, uh, which, yeah, all of those tournaments are around 50 plus people. Uh, oh. And if I and if I could, it, even if I could put more people into the place, I think I could even go up to 75 or anything like it. So been really blessed with that. Um, but yeah, th th that's it. A little bit in a nutshell. <laughs> Are there, this is more so just out of curiosity. So in the US, we have a lot of like pocket clubs almost in different regions uh, throughout. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of like, you said you're with the Rotterdam White Scars. Is there a bunch of pocket clubs throughout the Netherlands? 
Definitely, definitely. I think over the yeah the last few years, uh, what is it? Myself and Kevin, um, that is also active in the Middle Earth international scene. Uh, we set up, or at least we took over one of the Dutch discords, and now it's been the central point of the Dutch community where everyone comes together. And in there, you saw all the small pocket or the all the small um, yeah locations started mm -hmm. to really flourish. Uh, so I think we now have like a small community uh, in the north of the Netherlands uh, that's been led by Jesper. Uh, he's doing it through the Warhammer stores, but also at other locations. Uh, we've got the Fantastic Club in uh, Arnhem. So that's a little bit more to the east border towards Germany and everything. A lot of them also are sometimes going across the border to visit some of our, our German friends over there. Uh, and then, yeah, I think in the middle of the Netherlands, we've got us that are organizing, I think, the bigger tournaments. Uh, but we now also have like smaller events going on there as well. Uh, from Kevin, uh, Menno, for example, Larry. Uh, but those are also already, uh, yeah, all around the area of Rotterdam. A little bit more towards Amsterdam as well. But I think, yeah, central Netherlands is, is probably our territory where we currently uh, are the big fish. Okay, that is all very interesting information. So you were talking about just your um, participation in hosting this large event. How many years now? Obviously, COVID probably disrupted things, but how many years has the Dutch GT been going on now? Um, if I'm correct, it's from 2017, 2018. So okay. uh, I think when, when Articom started to do the invitationals and everything uh, so that the winner could go to Articom and then participate in the Masters, uh well we've been there as a as a group since day one uh, at article and we always supported james in every way that we could uh, i think with even the first few years we took up uh the responsibility for the painting competitions and everything because well the netherlands really enjoys the painting and all the aspect of of it um but yeah when we got this opportunity as well we said like hey listen if we can help with it you would definitely will so i think it's now three or four runs we had. Uh, and up until now, we never had an official Dutchie representing the Netherlands. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so kind of moving on to the next question that I have that I'm very curious about now, obviously, uh, you know, Evan, Matt and Renier are, are all probably well acquainted with this, but um, how was the tournament organized for me and people listening? Like, uh, what were the points levels? How was the um, uh, the kind of the scoring and scenario selection? Like, how was the tournament organized? Okay, yeah. Uh, well, for, for most uh, of us, yeah, most of the times when we're doing the tournaments, um, we're looking around what uh, point value has been played the most. So uh, currently in the Netherlands, but also at the international tournaments where most of our guys and girls are going towards two these days is uh, 650 uh so we did the, the dutch gt as well on 650 um just to stay in that environment to get people known a little bit more into it and dive a bit more into the meta here and there um so that was a, that was a simple one i think up until now we only played once at the dutch gt and 700 event so then we had a few people playing still with smoke but i think that those were also the years that uh, Articon was participating in 700 points as well. I think uh, at that point, 
Devin at the time played against Thijs with with a smoke at that time, so uh, was also lovely to see. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, we we always see what what the international tournaments are doing. So also looking to Nova uh, to a few other internationals as well. Like hey, what do they currently do, and would that fit in our community? Um, and then I think we also talk with like all the small hosts or club leaders from the community as well. Like, Hey guys, what would you like to see? You know, we've got the venue, but you guys are actually the ones that are, yeah, we need to fill up the event. So what would, you, what would be your preference? So to say, um, and then some, yeah, most of the times it was around the same point value as the international tournaments. Um, for the scenarios, yeah, we did actually for scenarios, just all the pools once at least. And then we always have this uh, nice traditional of like the first one, uh, we have like these Plusha uh, D6 dice. Mm -hmm. We always go to two people and rolling the dice to give them the fate of everyone uh, so, that they can't, <laughs> so that they can't complain about what, uh, what actually been rolled. Think uh, only on the Saturday evening. So we're going into, when we play three rounds, we go into round four on the Sunday. Uh, most of the times then we will roll ourselves to make it a little bit easier and give the people that are uh, upstairs having a drink, having some more social times, uh, we will do that all behind the scenes as well to give them the maximum time to uh, get together. Um, and yeah, I think further, uh, what is it, the scoring points and everything, this year we had got a lot of feedback um, that yeah, first we had like a 3-2-1 system um and then the vps as well and painting points as um the tiebreakers um the first few years that went pretty well but the more international people we we gained the more we want to focus on how would would it be international mm. uh so we went eventually for the match play guide i think that one is, is quite balancing uh overbalanced um and it's also really easy because if anyone has some questions to it you can always say like hey your match play guide on that page is the point system. Okay. Uh, that is also very interesting information. I love how you guys have a collaborative aspect of like reaching out to the various clubs throughout the region to uh, get some information from them. Uh, I don't have too many more questions, but I do have a few more things that I'm curious about. Um, so everyone, for the most part in this group, like we all have experience ourselves running events, obviously at a much smaller scale. But I was really curious, I wanted to just ask, like, what goes into running this large, now essentially international event, such as the Dutch GT? I mean, you had players coming in really from all over the world to play in this event. So what goes on, or what goes um, into organizing an event like that? Yeah. Um, so first off, I, I always have to say, and I think I also speak on behalf of Thijs, uh, that's actually my co-host running the events and running uh, the Rotterdam White Scars. It's always a blessing to have the international people. So this year, when we heard like Matthew and everyone to participate, later on, right near uh, Luca from Italy, uh, we had so many international people. And I think especially when the Dutch community saw those names popping up, like, oh, oh my God, guys, here, we go, here, here comes the big guns, you know? Now it needs to be completely serious. Um, but yeah, for us, it... I think for us as a community, we're such open and we're always interested in what's going on in other countries. And when we have the time to 
socialize and everything. We're always there to have an, a nice beer and a chat about what's going on in their countries. Uh, and I think that also helped building it up because I think, yeah, that the last three, four years, even before COVID, we already had like a lot of people from Belgium, but also starting Germany. Um, unfortunately, we now didn't have space, but otherwise we would have a few of the Finnish people coming over as well because uh, Thijs also participated in the Finnish uh, nationals. Um, we had even last year a few of the guys from Northern Ireland over as well. Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, our events always bombing with uh, the Scottish GT as well. But otherwise, we had like a lot of those guys want to participate into it as well because, well, we've traveled quite a lot of times towards those events. Um, but yeah, organizing these things, it, it's always, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I think now at this point, we're, we're going and do it on autopilot. Okay. Um, but um, to give a bit of a view, I think it's a bit similar, like what you will do on a small event. So uh, always calculate in on how much room do you can actually, or how much tables you can put in the room. Uh, we've decided this year to open it a little bit more so that it would be a bit more air and a uh, place to store stuff, etc. Um, and we also tried a new formation with the tables. Mm -hmm. So we now made like four lines instead of like multiple smaller lines, which actually gave a little bit more space and also an opportunity for us to say like, hey, next year we will have more tables though, due to the success of how easily this was actually run by us. Mm -hmm. uh, and then further, well, I think half of the terrain or 66% is from us, from, from the Rotterdam White Scars, which has actually been funded by the community. So we're in this case, a non-profitable organization. We always say like everything that we get in, we will pay the venue for, but everything we will then put down on Patreon or our social media pages to showcase like, hey guys, this is actually what we've created or what we could create now with the help of you guys supporting our events. Um, and some of the more scenic tables and everything was done by one of our local guys that is really into the modeling aspect and making thematic boards and everything uh, in the yeah full recognition for Tolkien and the world of Middle Earth. Uh, and then it's all coming together, you know, then the Friday, it's always setting up. Everyone is enjoying, takes like three, three and a half hours. And then with the team that we have, so we're actually with four people. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was now with me on the Saturday and on the Sunday as well, but he didn't do that much uh, due to, he had his um, commission uh, painting stand there as well. Um, and yeah, Thijs was also not there due to some obligations with uh, yeah, some of the other things he has next to the Rotterdam White Scars. Um, but yeah, and then from there on, it's just running and having fun with it. I think that's at least the spirit that always keeps me going with these events because they are massive. Uh, you always need to compose yourself and help everyone and giving them the best feeling that they can have. Cause that's, I think, especially important for the international people. How are they doing? Are they enjoying themselves? Are they not feeling what is it locked somewhere in a corner with their own group, not getting to know the, the rest of the community. Um, so that's especially for me and Thais really important to get people connected and always seeing at this event that everyone comes together, having fun with it. That's for us like the most amazing thing there is. So, and I think that's also the success.
of what we have from uh, from our event the last couple of years. Have you always run it at the same hotel or has it been different hotels? Uh, so the first two years we did it together with like, uh, we were, uh, we had the opportunity to work together with one of the other bigger communities in the Netherlands, Alliance Open. They are doing like the warmer fantasy, uh, warm age Sigmar and the warm 40k ones. So that one was in Amsterdam. Uh, but I had to put the prices that they asked for 40k, I had to ask to the Middle Earth community which is not the same community. So there is a lot of commitment though, but most people can't afford the same what the local players from 40K or H Sigmar at that time could afford. So those events were always like around 15 or 16 people maximum. And it was really a shame because I, I talked with them multiple times said like, you would just make a ticket because the tickets at that time were, um, what is almost 80 euros or something like that to the comparison that what we currently do for 70 euros, but there was nothing extra with it. So you had like a small lunch with some sandwiches uh, and a small uh, can of soda. Uh, and then, yeah, in comparison to what we have, well, you guys now experienced it, like it's yeah. a full buffet and everything that, on there. I, I have to say that venue is, that, that may have been the best venue i've ever been in for an sbg tournament and just to give really? folks yeah just to give set folks a sense of, of what this nice. was very nice yeah i mean it, so you're uh, us at least in the united states are used to when we're going to an sbg tournament we're either in like you know somebody's store or we're in um you know like the the, the back room of some space where somebody knows a guy um or we're in you know some you know the the convention space of some kind of generic hotel that's just you know basically kind of like empty walls and a carpeted room and then a bunch of tables set up um this was in you know kind of a boutique tourist hotel um in the basement of the hotel and you know this this hotel had like a you know like a full gourmet restaurant upstairs um, so if you, you know, if you stayed there, you could, you could, you know, have like top class food just walking downstairs. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, in addition to the fact that, the, you know, kind of the meals were provided through this hotel. So they would put on like a, a lunch for us where we would go upstairs and have like, you know, kind of a, a gourmet meal each, each lunch. Um, they had, they had a bar downstairs, um, like right, right in the venue room. Um, so you could just walk over the bar and get something to drink. And, you know, they had snacks laid out you could get. And it was, it was even catered to the extent that, like, you know, folks would, like, bring platters of, of like, hors d'oeuvres around to the table and say, you know, would you like some? And, uh, I mean, it was great. It was um, <clears throat> first time First time I tried. It, I, I'm probably going to butcher this, but is it is it Oliballen? Is that how it's pronounced? Oh, you mean, uh, no, it's a bit of ball. Bitterball, that's what it was. Yes. Right. Bitterball. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, which was, you know, I, I guess a traditional Dutch um holiday food that, you know, they're just bringing these around. And it's it's kind of like a a fried bread ball with with you know, kind of some kind of super sauce in the middle that you bite into. Yeah. And it, I mean it was great. It was a lot of fun. I want to second that though, Matt, because it was we always go to events around the world and we say, wow, next time I want to visit this city. But there you actually felt like you were experiencing some Dutch culture, some lekker food. Like it was just a nice, 
go we went for walks afterwards in like the 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 neighborhood which is gorgeous evan and i stayed like what like maybe a mile away and we'd walk Yeah, in the something morning like that. and we'd just be like wow just what a beautiful place you know Yeah. And, and at one point, my wife was actually upstairs in the room. I think we were playing at the time, but the 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 local town Christmas festival like took place outside our window and she like got to watch the Christmas parade go by and, uh, um, you know, and, and then, you know, kind of various festivities happening like right outside the window. It was really a great it was a it was a great tourist experience on top of um, on top of the SBG uh experience and that's that's not something i think you usually get in you know in ordinary um you know in an ordinary sbg tournament so i really want to make sure that 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 gets that that aspect of it gets gets talked up it was uh it was a fun trip as well as a fun tournament it sounds like we need to step up our tournament game here in the U.S. Like that, do. seems like that's hard to beat. To be perfectly honest, um, I have two more questions, and then I'm going to turn it over to the rest of the guys who were there to talk about their experiences. But um, you've touched on this a little bit. It actually, hearing you talk about the painting culture in the Netherlands was really interesting. I would say we have some really talented um, artists here in the U.S. who like spend a lot of time on that uh, area, but. Uh, Kind of hear you describe that it's so pronounced in the, the Netherlands was really interesting. But I wanted to ask, um, I'll kind of ro roll these two questions together so that hopefully we can get through them pretty quickly. But what would you say, like, what is the competitive social culture like in the Netherlands for SBG? And then uh, to kind of round that out, uh, what would what is also the meta like in the Netherlands? I think we're all competitive players. A lot of competitive people listen to the podcast. So I think we're probably all pretty uh, curious about that. But then, so how is the, how's the social culture there? Uh, and then what is the meta like in the Netherlands? Okay. So um, I think for the social, the social part and uh, painting aspect, um, it, it's fantastic. It's, it's great. I think uh, compared to other, well, I've been to few international events. Uh, most of them uh, in the UK, Scotland, have now had the opportunity of participating a few in Belgium, Germany, but now also in uh, Finland as well. I haven't participated. I was actually playing next to that event as well, but seeing it with ties, that, that was something also spectacle playing on there. But seeing people putting so much effort in there for painting because people are really motivating each other over the phone, WhatsApp, Discord and anything and saying like, Hey, you know, I've converted this and this. Oh, have you seen this and this on like one of the other Facebook groups? And then they start to work on that together and they're just challenging each other themselves. Uh, it is something that always been been there. And um, it's really hard to describe though, because I think a lot of us now, because as I said before, like in the beginning, we had like 14 or 15 people. And then you had like maybe five ten people casual and five of them could actually really paint really nice uh i would say even tabletop standard and then tabletop standard plus uh but now everyone does that you know mm -hmm. almost everyone is just enjoying that but they started uh also bringing in that meta a little bit and that also mm -hmm. comes to your second question because everyone is enjoying the painting so much but over the last few years, we got so much cool miniatures coming out, uh, or that came out actually, uh, but also different legions, uh, traits, uh, 
and everything that a lot of people also said like, hey, I can still do the painting aspect, but I can also participate finally a little bit in the meta because they are now actually focusing a little bit more on thematic armies, uh, on things that happen in the books or in the movies or anything like it. And well, uh, I think a good example, uh, what I think all three guys experienced as well, and what everyone sees in the world as well, the Dragon Emperor is doing lovely on every table. Um, yeah. But for for a lot of those guys as well, they are also fantastic to paint. The the new miniatures uh, uh, for the the yeah, what is it? The Black Dragon upgrades and everything. The Dragon Emperor itself, Utabi, Brogear, they are really really stunning. Um, I think we even missed out a few of the people. Uh, which were our local barreling players. Uh, I don't think they're that much of a meta, but I think the sub-tier, or I think at least up until the top, they, they can really participate well with them. Uh, but also Black black Riders. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, uh, what is it, bringing uh, the Necromancer, the few of uh, Ring Race of Dolgadur that uh, can also uh, do a pretty swing as well. Um but yeah, I think overall for the that social part is, is really good. And the painting aspect only makes it even better. Concerning to the meta part, I think we now have like a group of 15 to 20 people, I would say, okay. that are really checking everything, that are talking as well with international people, maybe with some people uh, like yourself or over different social medias or anything like it. Um, and they just want to get everything out of the game, you know, not only in the form of like, okay, there are still a few loopholes in here, which mm. I can exploit as a really competitive player, but also of like, okay, I want to really step up my game because the group around me is becoming much, much better as well. Uh, and they start to talk, starting to observe other events, uh, starting to listen to podcasts like this podcast and a few of the other ones as well. Um, so yeah, I think the regular things that you guys see now in the tournament scene. So we just covered it a little bit. Dragon Emperor. Um, I was actually surprised to see Assault on Lord Lorien. Uh, was it three or four times uh, across the entire tournament? Uh, even after the nerf, they're they're still pretty good. But I think they lost a little bit of spice in there. Mm -hmm. um, but then also seeing a lot of the old combinations coming back again. So Suladan joining in in every form or shape that you can uh, imagine of. So binding with Mordor uh, or with any of the others uh, in good as well. A lot of Gondor still because Gondor still has a lot of opportunities in creating a lot of cool and also strong lists, uh, but not that much yellow alliances or, any, or red alliances, at ah. least from what I can still remember though, because as you yeah, as we said, it's been been now a few months though, uh, but I have I haven't seen that much yellow alliances. It's, it was mostly green with maybe five to ten of yellow alliances. If I'm correct, if I'm not, guys, then you'll show also you you've probably checked it better than than I did. So uh, and uh, please uh, correct me in this one as well. Yeah, but I want to uh, say something else too about y'all's terrain it was really good. Um, I think like all of us can agree, like at the event, I was really impressed. It reminded me a lot about Nova, where each uh, board had a lot of spunk and personality enough, um, I guess, uniqueness to add to the game, but not too much. You know what I mean? There wasn't like a huge mountain or like five rivers. 
but it was it was good to where it allowed us every single game i was just like immersed in the scenery with my opponent and we were like super excited and we we're like oh I, i'm so happy that we're able to play on this oh we're kind of glad we lost so we go down so we can play on this this board so there are a lot of those type of conversations i don't want to say that the event also shined in and it was my second dutch event that i attended and i want to say both of them had just spectacular terrain yeah well thank you very much for that Rene. i think for us it's always so important to showcase the entire uh game aspect of middle earth i think middle earth has so much rules concerning terrain and everything and i think we can all speak about that certain events uh aren't bringing that awesome aspect of the of, of the game itself at the moment or at least not in the way that it should be so i think in the core core games it now says like at least 66 percent or something should be terrain on your table with multiple different aspects in there as well. Uh, so for to answer your question, I think a lot of people said as well with like the thematic tables, they are great, uh, but I've seen tournaments having them only on the bottom tables. So then at some point you even, maybe as a casual competitive player, you still want to play on those, but you never had the opportunity to play on them. So this year we also said like in every row we have we want to put at least one or two uh tables but definitely not the top five tables because those are way too important so i think the first thematic table was table six something if i'm correct if i'm correct with the the shire table and the two uh, bigger uh hills on there and then further we had like a gondor table uh, a few of the more tables with like a lot of lava and rock te uh, terrain as well um, but we also wanted, uh, next to those thematic tables, we also want to challenge, especially the more, um, what is it, experienced players to really abuse those rules as well. So I think uh, if, uh, what is it, uh, we had one of the, uh, we had Evan for most of our tournament on the top table, uh, but I think uh, on that top table, you had like every sort of piece of terrain on there that he could use at some point. So you had like hedges, fences, but also uh, smaller buildings, big buildings. So if there was something where you could get some advantages out, it was on the table there. And that is something what I sometimes miss in those yeah, bigger events, if I have to be honest. So uh, for, yeah, for example, article, uh, I've been now to Article five, six times. Always lovely terrain, great tables, but I really, really hate always every table that has like this sort of orc tent in the middle, you know? I'm getting so frustrated about that piece that I'm like, please, James, ch change it a little bit here and there, you know, because there are so much more elements in there. And I think the last couple of years, he finally listened to that feedback and he changed the tables upstairs or at least to the more top tier where also the masters is being held, uh, they have a little bit different terrain where they can start abusing it a bit. I can say abusing, but um, yeah, I would. it's always something at least that we want to bring to the watch the table because then you can truly see the difference between a competitive player and a competitive player that knows all the ins and outs or the truly understanding of what you can do with like the small rules. Yeah, actually, to to sort of piggyback on that um, point a little bit with the uh, 
with the table set up. So I played on table one five times, but it felt like each time I was figuring out a new thing to do on that table, right? Like there was always some sort of like, you know, I could flip sides, I could change, you know, we're going side to side instead of playing front to back. Um, I think in between the days, the terrain on the table was shifted around a little bit. So that created new opportunities and stuff like that. So despite the fact that I didn't really experience the the breadth um, that of the terrain that was offered at the tournament, um, the the way you guys used your terrain allowed for very interesting gameplay, which I appreciated. That's all what we want to hear, right? So, and especially uh, to point on that as well, I think, especially on the Saturday, and this is also one of those parts where you guys also ask like, hey, how much are you interactive with the community? I think at some point, uh, yeah, well, Evan came to us as well and said like, hey, it's, it's fantastic. But if I need to stay here all weekend, it's going to get a little bit, uh, yeah, I don't want to say boring, but uh, give me something else. And then for me and Thijs, it's in that mo moment, like, hey, listen, you know, it doesn't matter if you're on table 24 or on table one or wherever, if people really think like, hey, there needs to be a certain change and can we offer that, then we will. And I think especially on, well, we did it now at the Saturday evening when everyone was doing their social things, uh, enjoying their, their free time. And we had like small moments of, of, okay, listen, you know, we've got a lot of feedback on these tables. Let's sort those out. Let's change them a little bit so that there are new uh, challenges for those in the morning and we always do that automatically with table one no matter who's playing on there it's uh yeah especially for well we had it in the past as well someone had played like three or four rounds on table one uh it gets a little bit dull or uninterested yeah not interested in any more into it and that's not something you should experience because it can also suffer at some point for your well getting the scores in or playing that game Um, well, that is all actually very interesting information. Um, I, the more you guys talk about it, the more I feel bad that I wasn't able to make it myself. Uh, but switching gears just a little bit from like the structure of the event itself. I am of course, very curious to gain some, um, just hear a little bit about how, uh, Matt, Evan and Rainier's experiences were, um, you guys can, this is up to you. If you guys want to talk about what your scores at the events were now, or if you want to reveal that later, uh, that's up to you. But I'm really, so obviously, you know, each of you played six rounds. We can't go over feasibly 18 games throughout the duration of this episode. But I am really curious to see what was either like a game highlight. So like one of your six games that was a highlight itself or a highlight um, of just within a game. All right. Um, shall I start? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess like what a lot of people do, they do do scores. So I went uh, six games, four major victories, one major loss and one minor loss. So I ended the tournament four, four and two. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually quite happy about that, considering that I've been in Asia and Honduras for the past three years, uh, coming to a pretty uh, 
competitive event like it felt oh also sorry not to cut you off but what were you playing if you can just give people a rundown i was playing the non-competitive dragon or emperor leech <laughs> but it was fun i was like i was like one of those like toddlers that steals a ferrari basically so, <laughs> so, so many things my my opponents all are all telling me how to play that play They're like actually you shouldn't do that this is what this guy does and i'm like what <laughs> but, but um a common theme is i came up against a lot of really good dutch players that i don't want to say shocked me but it kind of caught, caught me off guard because in the u.s meta we have only really come across brits italians we came across some some dutch at articon the past year but like that was a new reoccurring thing as the dutch are getting quite competitive so i was shocked at how the each game regardless of how it went was really competitive um down the line from my first game to my last game i did also play i played kevin who's i think one of your guys top players really really good and i also played luca one of the top players in italy really good but all the other players fantastic um but yeah so um a common theme that i did come across was i played against a lot of elves which was nice uh yeah i played against two i think yeah two Wait, one Rivendell Lorien uh alliance, one Numenor uh Lorien Rivendell alliance, and I and then uh one Mirkwood uh with Thrandil um army, and that's one, two, three, I believe a Corsairs, another Easterlings with Mordor allied, and uh Luca played uh, Assault on Lothlorien. Mm. It, was, it was a it was a good blend of like really competitive legions and really good um tailored i think you don't uh touch on it pretty well like you can tell that all the dutch players thought meticulously about their lists down to the model and war gear and that's what i like because it's like each game felt like oh wow like they're coming to, to bring it <laughs> so i had to like step up and stuff um that said the one arm uh, one game that stuck out to me was the first and it was Lords of Battle against a. Let me see if I can remember what they, what Joachim had. He had uh, Galadriel with a lot of um, fight six guards of Galadrim Court, Elendil, and quite a lot, a good mix of Numenor, Banner in there, a Sentinel, and I think he had another hero. But yeah, it was against Akim, which is a good player, I believe, in your region, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I play regular with him. Um, and I think, yeah, what is it? He's always a, a fantastic lad, you know. He's always this this competitive edge on there, but he's always doing it with a smile, and he he truly enjoys the game in in its best format, so to say. He does, he does. And shenanigans. If there's one word that can like describe my game against him, <laughs> Oof, for sure, for sure. So so really good player. So like I've had conversations with Akeem before at Articon. And through WhatsApp and stuff, and it's really nice. But then I finally we 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 matched first round. And I was like, oh yes, Lords of Battle. Let's see. Oh shoot, it's like a, an elite list that's specifically made to fight the Dragon Emperor. Um, but let me see if I can screen share. Basically, uh, what happened was he did a good job at kind of castling in the corner, and I like came up against him. I was hoping to get a Lendil to attack me so I can try to take him out with the Emperor with Enchanted Blades or or or, or whatever. Um, he did take the bait, but he killed my captain and like a lot of my might through the process. I was like, dang it. Like I should have placed better, but he did kind of trap himself. Uh, and then I just piled everything on. It's similar because actually Matt and 
Alisher played him at doubles at Articon. Mm. So I was hoping he did a similar thing with uh, Bayhorn, right? I uh, well, yeah, he had to. He had to charge with Bayhorn. <laughs> yeah. So so I was like, oh no, Akeem, you did the same thing. Don't do that. But like, it was of course really good for him because he took out my might. And then I'm gonna share the screen and tell you exactly what happened and why it was my. He was able to avenge his poor rolling. <laughs> yes allow zoom to share your screen let me just open preference i'll shoot perfect one sec guys yes yeah, so it was a really good game super friendly we both said in the beginning of the game look and this is an important thing to play as a competitive player where you say look uh this is what i take seriously when it comes to competitive this is what i don't take considerably uh seriously and for us it was um movement if we were intentional with something we'd say look my intention is this if someone bumps the table or something, this is exactly what I want. My guy is six inches, over six inches, stuff like that. So he was a huge gentleman, but basically this is what happened. So here, can you guys see my screen? Yeah. Yep. We have Elendil here, down here, and he kind of killed uh, my captain, which was smart, my might. But I knew that it was Lords of Battle. Okay, Elendil is going to be the the beat stick. If he just like takes up my, my flank, it's going to be ruined. So I won the roll off uh, for a move. I took him into a lend deal, totally surrounded him. And I'm like, I'm going to kill this sucker outright. However, I left a guy here and I forgot that Galadriel has that cheeky, cheeky, cheeky compel spell. So Galadriel cheekily, and of course, Akeem is a world-class player, really smart. He can like, I don't know, like you guys, all the Dutch players listening to this probably know he can get himself out of anything. So he took he took this guy in this little hole, and here he comes ready to heroic combat with that. Ah. Uh, yes. Now let me guys show you this next picture. So wait, just for those listening to try to describe this a little bit, everything right now is really condensed. Galadriel is kind of off, depending on your point of view, she's off to the left right now. Uh, with several of her warriors um, on an Easterling, presumably at this point, to heroic combat. Uh, she compelled a gap to where further into the battle, although everything's really condensed, there's now like a 25 mil uh, hole where the Emperor can get charged. Right now the Emperor is engaged with Elendil and a bunch of Easterlings. So you kind of have two different like battle stages uh, Galadriel's on the one side, the Emperor's on the other side, and now this is kind of a race to try to free. Um, yeah, so basically I was going to like uh, try to one-shot Elendil. Um, I had Blade Blade Wrath, right? With, which, would you make him uh, pretty strong? Blade Wrath, the, the um, what's-his-face, the Emperor. I had struck up, so I should have won. I'm going to win this combat. And, and here with it is... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight models, including Gladriel, who had, I think, two might on her. Now, uh, of course, broke combat, killed that one Easterling. Numenorians are in that fight as well, so strength four. Should roll a six to kill him. Stop that attack from me kind of like destroying a Lendil. Picture number two. <laughs> Akeem rolls a five highest and a three highest with Gladriel. Literally, I proceed to shield, and what do I roll? Of course, this okay. <laughs> the solar snakes in the corner. <laughs> right here with my lucky die. If anybody knows this, I won when I won our when I con won Nova, but it always rolls a six for some reason. So it's not a cheat dice, guys. Blame Devin; he gave it to me. 
So yeah, here you go. He rolls here a five high, but of course this is with an elf. Um, there are other dice off, off this picture, but he's also rolling like twos and ones, poor guy. And then with Gladriel, who has the might, rolls a three high. So he cannot even might it up to a six. And then he just looked, we would just both look at each other like this should not happen. And then we both are just knowing, just waiting. Okay, he's. I'm going to roll a six. We just knew it. And I rolled the six. And if anyone knows from the first game at that event, there was lots of screaming at this game. <laughs> a big gasp of, oh. And then, of course, followed by, you know, that should not happen. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. But, but yeah, that was pretty bad. And then, so that, that combat does not go off. He, surprisingly, Elendil survives with me, like, totally piling everything in, winning the fight. But then the game just went a little sour for him with luck, and I just started killing his defense six things with ease, killing his guys that outfight me and stuff, mm. and finally killed Elendil. So it was a it was a fun game, a really, really, like, hectic kind of... We, we kind of countered each other with the meta, in a, in a sense. I had the numbers, I had some magic, he had the fight six, he had the strength four. So it was a really even match at Lords of Battle where every single kill counts. And then I just uh, took out a lot of his guys. I was up by like six or eight points. We go two more rounds. He catches up with like six or eight kills on the second to last round. We're like, what's going on now? He's just killing these Easterlings left and right with like strength three. And we're like, oh my gosh, Akeen, like we, 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 we might tie it. We're going to tie it. But then last round, I killed like eight guys. So it was just literally like, I I don't know why, but uh, my, my Instagram, uh, algorithm thinks that i love watching these big like european dudes slap each other in the face taking turns you know those tournaments that's exactly what it felt like we were just taking turns slapping each other slapping each other and like screaming and stuff so fantastic game he played it to the t perfect of besides maybe elendil getting uh out of his out of his league and getting killed but like look at that 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 should not have he should have rolled a six with with eight die and uh, two might. So yeah, fantastic game. But I want to say that was the theme of all of my games. It sounds Highly like the moral players. of the story is that the Easterlings are overpowered and Rainier is a meta chaser. That's what I'm getting out of this. I am a meta chaser. Yeah. I'm like, I come back and I got to win. I got to win. I'm this like, seems like a great game though. No, it was a really great game. And his look at his models, like just like, just like, uh, just like your own was talking about. Look at this. I'm not known for a good painter. Honestly, he's honestly, I don't know if he's known for one of the best paint paint jobs, but this is a fantastic paint job by him. We were just excited. Two players using the terrain to our advantage or disadvantage, wonderfully painted models, and just having fun with it with competitive armies, like both highly competitive armies, but having fun. So that was like the theme of the whole, I'm going to stop sharing, the whole event is just, we had a blast. All of my games a blast, to be honest. Yeah, if anyone's listening in as opposed to watching, you really should go in and take a look at the pictures because I think we're somewhere around 50 minutes into the video if you want to jump up. I, it's worth taking a look because, I mean, just from that little glimpse, the board looks great. Obviously, half the models there are Rainier's. They look very good. Um, Hakeem's stuff looks fantastic. So that that looks really great. What about you? Otherwise, uh, what is it? Otherwise, Alice, sorry to bother no. in. We we also have like we made videos and photos. You can also watch those oh, on our social yes. on yeah. our social for, media for pages as well. Too. So uh, yeah, yeah, for the painting as well. So if anyone is interested at that point, we will. They're all over there, so they can always 
watch and see how how that went. So. But yeah, that that was this fantastic game all around. I came like, uh, I'm sorry that I'm gonna have to talk about your bad luck on on YouTube. But <laughs> it was just it shouldn't have happened. You guys know my luck. Like I always roll sixes. Like I'm not a good player, guys. Anyone watching, they're like, oh, I'm gonna come against like Rainier. He's on that competitive, guys. I'm not. I just roll sixes at you the right. Figured out the like the wrist technique, right? It's. <laughs> My Indonesian heritage, like <laughs> I have the perfect. There's dances. It's a whole anthropological uh, meta. <laughs> All right, so that's mine. What about you, Evan? All right, so Evan just um, I I came, I saw, I conquered. The end. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm gonna remute myself. I think Rainier summarized my portion perfectly. Uh, <laughs> No, so um yeah, so I did end up winning the tournament. Um, so obviously things went well for me. But I think probably the most the thing that stood out to me the most at this tournament was just how friendly my games felt, even though um, you know, even though that I was on the top table most of the time. Everybody was super friendly. Uh, minus my dad, of course, when I played against him. You're you were nasty as always. But other than that, and, um, and with with cause, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about that game quickly, or is that part of the the game you were gonna talk about, Dad? Uh, uh no, I, I yeah, I mean we 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 can't we can't we can talk about that if we want, or we can we can you know what we'll do we'll we'll save that particular grudge match for another podcast at some point because i'm sure that's <laughs> we'll have to have a podcast episode just of matt and evan talking about all the times they've had to play each other at tournaments it's literally like guys if anyone here like is in the states you know every single event regardless of where it is in the states evan and matt are always like game four or five and, and the worst <laughs> part you know you know is whoever loses is gonna be like oh yeah you know i i rolled badly in this one situation or because in this case dad dad botched his rolls for hold ground and then uh decided to uh put his entire army in this little bubble that my army was surrounding and then he never got to the center in my defense it wasn't sur your army wasn't surrounding it at the time because <laughs> mm. well, then not you just gotta what were you, you just gotta roll better on those heroic move-offs then dad that's all i gotta yeah. tell you yeah you gotta learn rainier's flicking method you gotta do yeah. it guys. you gotta oh, figure out you roll sixes rainier I, I think that's really the, the method I need to to take my competitive gaming to the next level is I, I don't really have that that dice skill that you have, Rainier. I teach a master. I need to pick that's it up. all he remembers. Rainier just remembers the dice skill. All the competitive yeah, I, now, but... the, the next time I come down to Amsterdam, Rainier, I expect three days of just you teaching me how to roll those dice. Yeah, well, I'll do that, and you teach me actually how to play this game and what the heck a legion <laughs> No guarantees, I've, man. I've, no I've guarantees. been frozen in time, like freaking, like uh, who is Arnold Schwarzenegger in like Batman, the old game? Like you guys got to teach me what these legions are, because I come back and I'm like, what? <laughs> there are extra rules. Yeah. Um. But yeah, everybody was lovely at that tournament. Um. Obviously, um. Later on in the tournament, round five, round six, we were being very 
particular, of course, because that's what competitive players do. But there were, you know, there were no shouting matches. There was no unpleasant interactions. It was just, all right, how do you want to resolve this? Oh, let's resolve it this way. And then we figured it out. Um, it What was were you playing very, back very then? lovely games. Uh, yeah, so I ended up taking a sort of very, very standard mortar list. Didn't want to take anything too complicated. So I took uh, Witch King on Horse with a Crown. Um, you know, all the stats you usually give them. Uh, and then the Mouth of Sauron on foot, and then Suladan Serpent Lord, because of course you've got to ally him into every single list that he's green or yellow allied with, because why not? Um, and then I had a couple of uh, mounted Haradrim guys, some Watchers of Karna, and then just Black Numenorians with Marin and Orc Spear supports. And mainly the list was just centered around two very cost-effective heroes, And then just a really decently large army, like 38 models, and just a solid shield wall to, to sort of beat down the opponents. And obviously it worked quite well. Um, it was a lot of fun to play. It had good tricks, but it was also super solid. So I just had a good experience this tournament using it. Um, so I'd say, I'd say my highlight was actually um, round six, uh, which was... Obviously, the most important match. I was up against uh, Luca Camaretto. Um, but the way that this tournament had sort of shaken out beforehand, I was the only person on five wins, um, and he had four wins and a draw. So basically, what I was looking for here was a draw, is what I needed, basically, in order to seal the tournament. Because if I draw... Um, He drops down the rankings, and then the next two highest players are Dad and another player as well, who's also on four wins and one loss. So That was I pretty Luca much Barbarian. sealed the tournament at that point. Uh, no, you played Luca in round five, I checked. Oh, I played Luca in the round five. Okay, all right, never mind then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You're right. What is this, guys?
So he had a bat on one side of the board and I had my Witch King very central, basically in order to react with his spells to stop any bats going through. Um, and the bat was in range of getting off the board next turn if he won the priority roll. Um, but I had a plan for that. So I moved the Witch King to a situation where if I call a heroic move, then I can move first, compel the bat, and then charge in and kill it, and I can remove that problem. But I made a very poor judgment call. I decided to move him in front of a house with a bunch of my other guys uh, that's closer to uh, Luca's army that's advancing on me, instead of moving him behind, which is a much, which is a less uh, less strong position, but is a much safer option. And I ended up almost paying for that because, uh, and I saw the tactic right after I moved him. Um, Luca made a situation where if he gets his captain in range of, um, basically he puts his captain within six inches of a spider that's in charge range of the Witch King. And then he's got Drew's Hag in range too. So he could enrage the spider, charge into the Witch King if he wins the heroic move off. and stop my move. So effectively, he had a 75, uh, no, a 25% chance to be able to get this bat off and win the game flat out. He needed to win priority A and win the heroic move off B. And if those things happen, he wins the game. So we roll priority. He wins it. All right, I'm sweating. I'm nervous. And we do the roll off. And it goes my way. And I just let out a huge sigh of relief um, because I had almost basically thrown that game because if I had put the Witch King behind the other way, I would have just been able to call the heroic move. He wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Um, so that was a very close call in that game. Um, but thankfully, I was able to pretty easily destroy um, the rest of his uh, maneuverable models. That bat died by getting surrounded and killed. Um, I managed to compel his other bat over my line and kill that, and then uh, kill the two spiders due to some unfortunate rolling from him and also some good positioning from me. Um, and at that point, it was basically just don't break. And I think on the last turn, he had, he was like three models off breaking me or something like that. So it ended up being uh, quite close. Um, he almost managed to pull the win there. I think I was like six, seven models off of breaking him. So that wasn't going to happen probably. Um, and it ended up being another draw in the exact same scenario that we played last time. Um, and that ended up securing me the tournament win. So it was a really tense game, really fun. Luca's a nice guy, despite being a very competitive player. And overall, yeah, I just had a blast with this tournament. And then Matt, how about yourself? So what were you playing? And then what would you say was a tournament highlight? So I was playing um, uh, the Easterlings Legendary Legion. So I had, you know, kind of the, the, the usual, I think it was actually the same list that I ran at Articon. Um, there might've been a figure off one way or the other, but um, so it was Emperor with 15 Black Dragon Pikes and um, three Black Dragon Cataphracts, one of which had a drum. Um, Rutabi, who had um, 
uh, I think like six uh, normal um, Easterlings in her warband, and um, uh, then Brogir, who had like you know five or six. I can't remember exactly how many um, Easterlings in uh, his warband, and uh, so the game, the 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 highlight of the tournament. Although I you know I did have I had six, well five really fun games, and then one game against my son. Um, uh, we, uh, the, the one, the highlight one was one that I, I played against Luca Barberi and I think Evan is right. This was, um, the penultimate game. This was, um, round five. This is um, a different Luca, right? Yeah, this is a different Luca. There were two Lucas who came from Italy. Uh, Evan fought one. I yeah. fought the other. Yeah. The, the um, Lucas send, or, or Italy sends Lucas, America sends Iversons. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is this is the way um and uh uh so this was the this is the penultimate game it was round five i was just coming off of my my drubbing by evan um and uh he was playing the home hammerhand legendary legions so we had um two legendary legions um facing off uh he had he had helm obviously um he had uh two captains um i believe they were both on a horse um at least one of them was on a horse and then um uh and then and he had a, he had a few cavalry um and uh but most of his army was just you know kind of guys on foot with throwing spear and shield so he had the the kind of throwing the throwing spear mob um so uh, seize the prize markers in the middle of the board we're all kind of lined up and ready to go um we each call a uh we each call a heroic march um and then because we want to get there first we each call a heroic move and we've got our guys kind of lined up so that most of our stuff you know can get up and benefit from this and uh then we do you know kind of one of the most important roles of the game uh who gets for who goes first on the heroic move um, I won this, um, and I was able to project my, I, I had three cavalry, my three cataphracts, one of which had the drum, project them forward, and uh, I get, you know, two cataphracts in front, one guy comes up behind, steps on the objective, dismounts, they make the roll to pick up the objective, and I pick up the objective. And at this point, Luca goes, oh, no, the game's over, oh, well, you know, I'm doomed. And I'm like, Luke, it's not over yet, you know, you get the rest of your army coming up, and things could happen. Um, and, uh, so we go into, we go into turn two and, uh, at this point, um, you know, because of, you know, most of the, the fact that most of my army moves nine, my cavalry's up there on the objective. I couldn't really seal, I couldn't seal Helm off from getting in against me. I think in, in addition, I think one of his, his throwing spears killed off one of my cataphracts. So, you know, the area that I was kind of protecting around my guy with the objective got smaller, um, and, uh, but we're at a point where, you know, I've got, um, I think Rutabi within, within like three or four inches of the center, the emperor's up there within three or four inches of the center. Um, and if I win this heroic move off, um, I can, I have two options. I can either hand the, um, the artifact to, or the, the prize to, one of the cataphracts that's standing adjacent to it, and that cataphract kind of runs off, and the rest of the army just kind of moves up around it, and um, you know, 
goes at his army, in which case I probably have won the game. Or I can even just move it back and just give it to the Emperor. Um, and that also probably wins me the game at that point, because he doesn't really have a, a good answer in that army to taking the Emperor down. Um, but Luca wins the roll-off. Um, and he is able to get, you know, he did a he did a great job of taking his cavalry and his guys and getting them in. He gets he gets helm into my guy um with the uh my black dragon dismounted black dragon cataphract with the artifact. He pins other guys in and he kind of he pins kind of the rest of my army back. Um at least well enough. You know, he basically kind of throws all his cavalry in to try and, you know, kind of hold the rest of my army back. So if he can you know, he can call her a combat with Helm, win the combat against my guy, um, and then um, and then get out. Um, and at that point, the game's probably his. Um, so we go and we roll the combat, and he calls his heroic combat, um, and, you know, I shield. Um, and, you know, he... He rolls all his dice. He gets his six. I roll my two dice, um, and I don't get a six. I re-roll it on the banner, and I get the six. So, mm. but because I'm within six inches of the emperor, I am also fight five because he couldn't call a heroic strike and a heroic combat. So we do the roll off, and the roll off goes to me. So I retain, you know. So Helm has to back off. I retain the artifact. Um, so we go into the next round and, in the ne and, you know, because he kind of sent in his cavalry at this point and his cavalry basically, you know, it, it was just, it, it was a knowing suicide charge to hold the rest of my army back because I've got the fight value advantage. I've got the emperor there and I've got three ranks of pike there. So he threw in a bunch of his cavalry, like almost all of that cavalry died. Um, and you know, the, the rest of my army is kind of coming to grips with his army and, you know, the rest of my army is going to beat his army over time. Um, but the question is, you know, can he hold me long enough to get this objective? So, you know, at this point in time, Luca's like, oh, no, I've lost. You're going to charge up to me the next turn. Um, so we go and we do we do a heroic move off the next turn. Um, and uh, and he wins it again. Um, so uh, he's able to get Helm back into my guy. Um I, at this point, Rutabi has kind of like fought her way up to next to this guy with the uh, with the objective, but can't get into Helm. Um, and he has he has a few figures left to kind of at least hold back the emperor and the folks kind of around this fight in the center of the table. I'm able to bring other folks up around the edges. And what we end up is in a situation where um, now, you know, Helm Helm can win the combat, but can only kind of, if he wins the combat, he can only go sideways because between his own figures and my guys that have kind of lapped around the back, he can't back out further. Um, so this time he calls the heroic combat. This time he wins, um, kills my guy, takes the objective, and then kind of gets as far to the side as... Um, as far to the side as he can. Um, and then we have, you know, yet another heroic, uh, and, and, and what also happened is Rutabi had called a heroic combat trying to get into 
um, Helm's combat, didn't get it. Helm managed to get away. Rutabi is kind of like chasing after him and like gets within range of Helm. So if Rutabi wins the uh, heroic move off, then Rutabi can get into Helm. A bunch of guys can get behind and we've got a fight. Uh, so we, we go to the next turn's heroic move off. Um, and, uh, and Luca wins again. So, um, so, you know, there, there's all sorts of, all sorts of careful measuring going on. And what we end up is he, he, Luca decides he's going to try and get, cause the rest of his army is kind of going down at this point. Um, but he's going to take the objective and he's going to take it and get it to the, to my, basically to my side of the board. He's going to get as far to the side of the board as he can and kind of just get it over the edge. Yeah. And it looks <laughs> like it, it, and when we, when we do the measuring, um, uh, Rutabi can get, you know, Rutabi then does her move afterwards. Um, Rutabi can get within six inches of Helm, but it looks like that's about it. So if, if Helm wins kind of one more of these roll-offs, Helm's gone. Um, and what we do and what we do at that point, um, because Helm thinks he's made it. As long as he can like fight off Rutabi and then kind of get out of there, he's made it. So Luke is happy at this point. Um and what I end up doing is um uh, I managed to get the emperor into somebody relative, you know, toward that side of the board. Emperor calls a heroic combat, and emperor is able to use the heroic combat to teleport or to move within six inches of helm. So now the emperor can grab him too. Unfortunately, when I looked at the table, I hadn't thought this out. Um, by doing this, I blocked out Rutabi from getting into the emperor, or I'm sorry, Rutabi from getting into helm. Yeah. But at least I've got the emperor over there. So we go to one more of these heroic move roll-offs, and this one I win. Um, so at this point, I can't get Rutabi into the emperor into helm, but I can get the emperor into helm. And at this point, there's a whole bunch of my army kind of running up behind. They can't get there this turn. Um, but uh, so I go into the emperor, or I go into helm with the emperor. We both strike up. He wins. He wins the heroic strike off. He wins the combat. Um, fails to wound the emperor. I think the emperor kind of goes through all of his fate, but doesn't do wounds. Mm -hmm. But at this point, kind of the rest of my army is poised. So we have one more of these heroic move offs. And if if Helm can make this heroic move off, you know, basically he gets away because I don't I don't have any cab left over here. Um, my cab is dead. Um, he can just kind of move off and get out of range. Um, but I win this heroic move off again. Mm. Um, and at, at this point, basically the emperor Rutabi, and then like a whole horde of guys with pikes, um, jump on poor helm. Um, this time, I think, I think he, he struck up. I struck up. We both went to 10. We rolled. And I think actually what happened is, when we did the roll off, we got um, basically the the emperor's elven blade like carried the day. I think we rolled a four, um, and uh, so I took the combat. Helm went down, um, and at this point, at this point, you know, kind of the the rest of his army had kind of had had broken at this point. So I was able to that allowed me to get the objective. And there was I think there was like five minutes left in the game, and 
we, we actually like call the game at that point. It's like, oh, you win. And then I came back after it's like, wait a minute, there's enough time to get another turn. Will you give me the couple points to get it over the edge? Because at that point I was like half an inch away from the edge. It was like, oh yeah, sure. Um, so uh um we uh uh we we ended up kind of getting over the uh getting over the edge and I was able to pull it out that way. But it was it was an emotional roller coaster ride for both of us. Um and I mean it was it was kind of the way SBG was kind of designed to play where you have these like high state, you know, we were both pulling out all sorts of stops and tactics to get into these situations where the dice basically did decide the game, but, um, you know, it was, it was always these high stakes die roll. And every time somebody would win one of these high stakes die roll, they'd get themselves in a position where it's like, Oh, I've got this locked up. And then the other player would come back and come up with a tricky strategy to put it all back into play and make it all hinge on another high stakes die roll. We just did this like, all throughout the game, all the way through. And, you know, I ended up winning the game, I think, because of the last high stakes die roll going my way. But uh, yeah, you guys had some dramatic games. We did. Yeah. I mean, it it really was a roller coaster ride, an emotional roller coaster ride for both of us. But, um, you know, it's funny because when we left the next day, um, we were taking the bus to, uh, um, we're taking the bus to go to the Rotterdam um, train station. And it turns out Luca was on the same bus. So we got to like sit on the bus and kind of relive the the, the fight one more time um, before we got on the train together. So it was a great game. And then am I right? So then Matt, you are the Dutch master for Articon, right? Or am I, wrong? I, I No, I, I am. Because okay. the way it ended up working out is um, I came in second place. Evan came in first. Evan's already got a ticket. So the ticket passes to me. So I am actually in the midst of um, changing my citizenship from the United States <laughs> to the Netherlands. So Getting that... a DNA test just to see if there's any chance you have some heritage. <laughs> well, no, actually it is. There's a there's an odd statutory exception in Netherlands immigration law that says if you actually win the Articon Masters ticket um, for the Netherlands, you actually qualify for Dutch citizenship. So uh-huh. Um, I'm able uh-huh. to exploit this. I thought and... there was a piece of bioengineering attached to the ticket that when you touch it, it instantly transforms all of your DNA to Dutch DNA. So you, no, you're allowed I, you to know, compete. I wish that there was. I actually have to fill out the paperwork and get the Dutch passport, but you know, I should be able to get all that done by uh by Articon. So um uh Haroon has has volunteered to get me a Rotterdam White Scars uh t-shirt that there. Um, and I gotta, I gotta find myself a Dutch flag and, um, you know, I'm going to go and victory to the house of orange. Um, when we go, we'll get you so- we will get you sorted. Don't worry. All right. <laughs> so I am, I am, I'm going to wholeheartedly embrace, um, my new, my new country here. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. There you go. Does anyone have another last minute note about the Dutch GT before we take a look at a list? It sounds like, honestly, it really does sound like, I mean, Matt, Evan, like you both attend many events per year. I attend many events per year. It sounds like from an outward perspective that this sounds like one of the nicest events of the year. Obviously every event is quite nice, but it does sound like this was truly an amazing event. Yeah, I, I, it was, and I, I am, I am serious. I'm completely serious when I say this may well have been like my favorite 
venue of um my favorite venue of of any SBG event. I think the the uh the the Nova the, the place where Nova has been held up up to before last year when mm. Nova moved to a different venue, I think probably is a is a close second because that was a, a great hotel. But mm. I mean this the 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 hotel in um the hotel and venue in the Netherlands just had so much more atmosphere than any other um place that I've been to. It's just like I said, it was, you know, it, it felt like I was, you know, kind of there on a vacation as well as an SBG tournament. And that's a great feeling to have. Yeah. So all right, do we want to talk about a list? Yeah, let's take a look. All right. Let me, I'm I'm gonna share my screen here. We can get the collective wisdom of two comp continents involved. All right, so um, here we have a list, and uh, this is uh, this is a list that was submitted by Tabletop Landscape Seven Eight Four Two, and uh, he. He has created this is another watcher list. We did a we did a watcher list in the last episode. This is the second one. This is a bit of a different watcher list. Uh, and what he created here was something to add a second threat that can distract from the watcher or in or in turn go unnoticed while the watcher attracts attention. So this is a Moria Serpent Horde Alliance at 700 points. Um and uh what it has in it. Our warband number one, which is Suladan on Armored Horse, who's the leader of this. And uh, with him are two Serpent Riders, six Serpent Guard, and five Haradrim Warriors with Spear and Bow. Notice these guys are all Spear for reasons that you'll see shortly. Um, next, we have Derbers. Um, Derbers is 70 points, and with him comes a Bat Swarm, five Goblin Warriors with Spear, five Goblin Warriors with Shield, two uh, goblin warriors with bow and two prowlers and we have a goblin captain and with the goblin captain are four goblin warriors with spear four uh, goblin warriors with shield and two goblin warriors with bow and then there's a, another goblin prowler there and then to round this all off we have a 200 point watcher in the water so this comes in at 43 models nine might nine bows uh, and I assume the strategy here is for the Serpent Guard um, to uh, the Serpent Guard and the Haradrim Warriors to kind of get behind the Goblin Warriors uh, whenever possible to uh, lend their somewhat higher fight value. Um, and uh, and then the, the Watcher does Watcher things in conjunction with the Bat. Uh, so, and, and Suladan has a six inch banner to kind of back all of this up. So, uh, I'm going to, you know, what? I'm going to throw this to our guest, um, yeah. first Haroon. So Haroon, what's, what are your thoughts on this list? Um, well, um, first off, he was also asking a little bit about the more thematic way of it and uh, next to the competitive, if I'm correct, right? Um, uh, Right. Matching the watcher to content. So we're obviously the maximized thematic component of a list and then just a stalking dreamed. Um, well, I think Evan said at the beginning, these days, a lot of people, especially competitive scene, is adding Suladon in there as an ally or being the leader of an army. 
because of all the points he's bringing to every scenario. Um, personally, I think it is okay-ish. I don't think it's huge of a meta. Uh, I'm definitely not a fan of the Goblin Wars with bows. I would suggest here to just put that one or change them around because I, if I'm correct, they're the same point value. Changing the bow ones to one with spear and one with bow, or one with shield to make a bigger shield wall, so to say, or even make more space for getting more serpent guard or Haradrim warriors in there as well. Um, and well, what is it? I played this year at Articon against uh, Antonio. One of the masters as well that had the watcher and the shadow lord uh, in the same list um i think that's a stronger combination with the watcher um Suladon is really great don't get me wrong but i don't think he adds a lot of spice here i think he's just there now to give the points and give a, a small bonus down here but that's pretty much it don't know how you guys are looking to it. So, I don't know. All right, before before I speak, does anybody else want to jump in? You can go for it. I'm interested to hear what you get. You guys always have different, slightly different takes than I do. All right, fair enough. I mean, I I agree that the Goblin Warriors with bow don't need to be here. Um, I think. I think more Goblin Warriors with Shield are a good replacement for that. Um, I also wonder about, you know, it, it, there's a question here about how many bow, how many Haradrim with bows you want versus <laughs> uh, Serpent Guard, because the Serpent Guard give you the fight for in the second rank. Um, and, you know, the Haradrim Warriors with Spear and Bow obviously give you bows. Um, and you know it, you you could actually up you could as this is designed there's a few more bows you could stick in here for less serpent guards um and so so that's one option if you wanted to go the the bow option i i think though that probably the the better way to do it is kind of the the way you've done it here i think this is a pretty reasonable breakdown with six serpent guards um i wonder if you want to make if you want to create a few more goblin prowlers um maybe in a number of goblin prowlers equal to the number of serpent guard that you have uh so that the serpent guard go behind the goblin prowlers um and up there so that you get basically you get you would have at least six um six files of fight four uh with a two-handed weapon um in front and you know with a banner behind which is a a, a decent amount of uh killing power and throwing weapons in front um yeah that's the throwing weapons, because this is outside the legion, you're not going to get the the plus one to wound on them. But it's you know it's a decent thing to have, and I think the two serpent riders probably are useful in this list, um, as is kind of the extra march. Um, I'd really like to see a second bat swarm in this list, and 
I'm wondering if the way, oh, hang on a second. Is Suladan's, so Suladan's uh, warband isn't full up, is it? No. No. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So you want to, you want to increase probably both the number of, I, I, I keep the two serpent uh, riders the same. I probably actually, maybe looking at this, delete the goblin prowlers um, so that you could get more Haradrim warriors with spear and bow and uh just go just go that way keep the six serpent guards you got fight for somewhere um get some more spears and bows that um uh can get behind uh ordinary guys um uh, and then just make your um your warband bigger uh i would also consider even though i know this is going to drop your numbers i would consider getting a second bat just because this the watcher bat combination is what this army hinges around. The watcher's ability to kind of reach over the front line, grab a hero, pull it in contact with both the bat and the watcher, and eat it alive. Um, and if you've only got one bat in the list, if something bad happens to that bat, if it gets compelled away or um, it gets shot or you know compelled someplace where it's going to going to die, you you really want to have a backup bat. Um, and uh, I would figure out a way to to do that you know even if you're dropping like a serpent rider or something a serpent rider and a couple of goblins to get the bat it's going to bring your model numbers lower but i think still if you've got the watcher in the water there if you're on the high 30s um with a 700 point list i think you're still going to be okay those are my thoughts well he's, he's even around to 40 number right 43 yeah he's so at 43 putting... right now yeah, yeah. So putting away the two serpent riders and probably one or two goblins will give him the allowance to put the second swarm in there. Yeah. Still around 39, 40 ish. Yep. So still uh, healthy as, uh, as well. Yeah, I can jump in quickly. I mean, not in an effort to not say the same things over and over again. I do. I don't, the prowlers. You only have three of them. You're you should either take more, like Matt said. I personally would just drop them entirely. I think everyone is likely in agreement that the bows are the goblin bows are entirely unnecessary. Um, I honestly, in this build, you have given that the the serpent horde is really meant to be your primary like backing of spears. I I wouldn't take no goblin spears, but I wouldn't take as many as you have taken. Um, they're really, I mean, of course, there are a few missions where with Maelstrom deployment, you could get messed up pretty quickly. So I wouldn't take none, but you, I mean, the goblins are there to be a D5 core. The spears are just, even if you, um, maybe, yeah, I, I don't think you need, maybe I would drop two spears for two more guys with shield. I, I don't as much mind personally, the one bat, two bats are incredibly helpful. I've played Moria a bunch with one bat, and I think it's okay. I, it is, I mean, the watcher in the water with the bat is your main thing. Something that I personally would like to do, given that Suladan already has Heroic March, I would rather see, oh, the Goblin Captain can't really be, uh, I'd rather you buff out Suladan's Warband and turn the Goblin Captain into a Goblin Shaman if the numbers work out reasonably well, um, you still then would have, what, 
21 goblins plus Durbers who are fearless, who are your front core. Um, and then you would have um you would have Suladan as the back core. That's probably not a controversial take, but I know a lot of people feel if you can't get like super maximized value out of a shaman, it's not worth it. I like shamans just to have the fearless front, especially because there are um whether you know it's Thrandall's Halls or it's uh Rivendell with Kirdan or Army of the Dead, there are a lot of um terror armies that are pretty common that don't revolve around a Wraith with Sapwell, um, that are still that are common enough to where I think you would want an answer to that. That's just an opinion. I don't know that you would have to go that route. Um, but otherwise I would tend to agree with what everyone else has said. Yeah, I guess I'll 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 add some um some closing thoughts to this. Um I think I think all of the changes that Alisher and Dad and Harun mentioned are all perfectly valid. Um and I think it just overall, this is an example of when you ally to cover holes, sometimes new holes will pop up in your army yeah. when you try to cover old ones, right? So for example, this army is really bad against terror when like, you know, a pure Moria army wouldn't have that problem because they've got a shaman in it. Um, this army, um, because it has goblins in front, is a little low on numbers in my opinion, just because 43 doesn't feel overly comfortable to me. Um, when you have those less than ideal goblin warriors in front, um, I might even be tempted to just drop all of the Haradrim warriors or almost all of the Haradrim warriors with spears and bows and just make them all serpent guards because fight four is extremely valuable. Basically, every army that isn't elves or Easterlings is going to be fight four, fight three. And the jump from fight three to fight four is absolutely huge. And especially when your numbers aren't great, um, getting that fight four is important. Um, and if you really want some token bow fire in there, then maybe turn the serpent riders into um, Haradrim raiders with war spears and bows, uh, which gets you some maneuverable shooting. I've grown to value that a lot more uh, the more I play mounted cab models, uh, mount, uh, mounted models with bows, um, just because you can move them half and keep them with the rest of your army at the same time and still shoot. Um, and I really think the shooting power in this list isn't going to affect much just because you're very reliant on the watcher. You're very reliant to getting into combat and getting the watcher in to be able to um, kill heroes and pick up troops and kill them. So I think just focusing on getting as much fight for in there as possible is very important. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was actually sitting here looking at this wondering if maybe the goblin captain goes away and you end up with um you put more serpent horn in this i just don't know i, I it's more math than i want to do to try and figure out 
um, what the numbers would end up looking. That might end up look like looking like too small a list. Um, but the uh, issue is the goblin captain is so cheap that whatever yeah, cure you yeah, take exactly. from serpent horde is going to really hurt your numbers. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually curious to see what a um, how much it would cost for just a bargain basement. Um, Haradrim uh, chieftain here. I mean, a Haradrim chieftain is only 50 points. Yeah, it's still more than 35. Um, yeah, that would probably drop things. Um, probably drop Especially because your warriors are more expensive. You're probably hitting like yeah. mid-30s, maybe high-30s if you're lucky. And yeah. with defense 5, defense 4, um, yeah, 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 I think it's gonna right. be tougher. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we uh I think we leave this and um but I think uh bulking out um Suladan's warband as as best we can. Um and maybe you don't go with a second bat swarm and just play really cagey with the one that you have uh is the way to go. I'm All curious right. if he yeah. plays it. If you play it, I'm curious if you put a comment in the future how it goes. Um, because this is definitely, I mean, a very out there kind of a list. It's not like Suladan's allied a lot, but I haven't seen this. I've never played against this. So this set seems interesting. Right. No, it is it, it is it is definitely different. And it is, you know, it's I think against if you can keep your one bat swarm alive. Um, and I think against hero uh, lists that depend on like real powerful heroes, um, this is going to be this is going to be a good a good opponent for them because the uh, you know the watcher will just kind of eat one of those heroes a turn um, against against the list that's like you know my list is a bunch of dudes um, this list isn't going to do that well because somebody else's dudes are going to kind of run over your goblins and the watcher will will kill a bunch of them but i think not enough to and not quick enough to matter yeah, yeah de definitely definitely put it in it's always one of the things we do here as well we said during the uh well this episode um when we're making armies we always talk with each other and then start training with them and every time we will do the same like we did now with the four of us talking over it, what's the strength, the weaknesses, and how would it work if we do like one or two small variations of it. So removing a few minis, adding something else, making it a bit more spicier. Um, I think that's also the reflection that you all witnessed as well with the GT, with, with most of the players that they started Something similar like this, like, okay, I would like to play Lothlorien Rivendell, and I want to play this and this, and then they start to keep playing tournaments, friendly games, stuff like that, and then they always keep tuning it a little bit. Um, and I think this is a really interesting, but also I think it's potentially strong list that can definitely deal with a lot of stuff, but you need to start learning how to play it correctly and maybe the small changes here mm. and there to make it even better. Like yep. we, we all mentioned. Yep. I'm really curious to it as well. So definitely gonna keep an eye on it as well. All right. 
All right. Well, I think that concludes our episode to today. Uh, in case any of you listening who were not watching the video, Rainier did leave several minutes ago. Uh, he had a quick uh, family emergency he had to jump off to. Uh, but this has been a fantastic conversation. I um, enjoyed quite a bit listening about everyone's games and learning more uh, about uh, the SBG community uh, in the Netherlands. So Haroon, thank you very much for spending uh, your evening uh, with us. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you all in the next episode. All right, everybody. Bye-bye.